This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 10th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from our Christmas market here at Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. It's the 10th of December. Coming up, the historian and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman will join me in the studio to review the Saturday papers. Also ahead, Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller will be telling us about the stories we might have missed. We learned that we were experiencing quite the red-letter week for aficionados of extra-parliamentary seizures of power. And a bit later on today's show, Sean Wynne-Owen from London's River Cafe will tell us all about the award-winning restaurant's new cookbook. One of the things I worry about having been a chef for 30 years is whether restaurants are, are going to be a dinosaur. Like, you know how tea dances, people used to go to tea dances and now people think they're quaint. That's all coming up here in the next 30 minutes. But first, here's the news. The United States announced new military aid for Ukraine and vowed to disrupt Russian ties with Iran, which a British envoy said involved Moscow seeking hundreds of ballistic missiles and offering unprecedented military support in return. President Xi Jinping has told Gulf Arab leaders that China would work to buy oil and gas in Yuan, a move that would support Beijing's goal to establish its currency internationally and weaken the US dollar's grip on world trade. And pro-democracy Hong Kong tycoon Jimmy Lai was sentenced today to five years and nine months in prison for fraud, convicted of violating a lease contract for the headquarters of a liberal newspaper he used to run. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, let's unpack the weekend's biggest talking points now with the historian, broadcaster and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman. Good morning to you, Alex. Good morning. Uh, it's very cold out there. It is a little bit parky. <laughs> uh, I see that in our uh, weekend edition newsletter, our editor, Andrew Tuck, has been talking about how uh, our editor of Conflict, Sophie Grove, says that puffer coats are out. She says there's no place for clothes, clothing that makes any kind of scrunchy sound in this world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have noticed there's fewer puffer coats this year and more of those sort of quilted ones. Do you know what I mean? The sort of diamond-shaped quilts, which are a bit more elegant, I think, possibly than puffers. But I'm sorry, in this weather, I don't care. I'll be wearing my duvet with a belt around it. <laughs> Going to have a chance. Absolutely. Well, in fact, the market is setting up. There are a few people out there in puffer coats. <laughs> but I can also see that there's a big pile of blankets from where we're going to be broadcasting from outside a little bit later on. Uh, there's heaters. There's all sorts of things. It's looking very warm and cosy. Alex, you walk through it briefly. It does look like it's going to be fun, doesn't it? Oh, it looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, I wasn't allowed a cup of tea because they were busy setting up a very exciting looking food stall so I'd better make up for it afterwards. <laughs> uh, let's turn to the papers because of course one of the biggest events of this week was the prisoner swap between the US and Russia. Uh, the New York Times has a very big piece on this as do many other papers. Yes, um, so this is the exchange of Brittany Griner who was a women's NBA basketball star um, 
who was arrested uh, in Russia for supposedly smuggling cannabis. She had a cannabis oil in her suitcase, although, of course, you know, there's very different rules on that in various places in the world, and she said it was an honest mistake, but was sentenced to nine years in prison. And she's been exchanged for an arms dealer called Victor Bout, who I think, Georgina, you you know quite a bit about. I do. This was when I was working uh, for a Zimbabwean radio station uh, a few years ago, and uh, we were tracking him very, very carefully because he was uh, a sanctions buster and he was very much involved in the war in the Democratic Republic of Congo to which Zimbabwe had committed I think 70,000 troops, a lot of people Uh, and there were all sorts of terrible stories coming out, for instance repatriation of wounded soldiers just chucked in the back of a cargo plane with kind of hay bales, I mean just horrible stuff, they call him the merchant of death and he, he would supply arms but often to both sides in the same conflict, I mean this is a man without morals in any way. And I think the, the reason that Russia was so keen to get him back was his links to to, uh, to, to the intelligence services within within Russia because, uh, you know, for, for, for some arms dealer, they've got a lot of those. Why would they be particularly interested in him? They wanted to bring him home as a patriot uh, and, of course, ensure that he doesn't say anything. Well, I mean, that's always really the idea, isn't it? I mean, it reminded me of, um, you know, the sort of most famous prisoner swap probably in 20th century history, of course, was was made into a film by Steven Spielberg, The Bridge of Spies incident. And this was the exchange of the U2 pilot Francis Gary Powers, who was shot down over the Soviet Union, um, for... Rudolf Abel, who was a KGB colonel. And I, kind of, I suppose the similarity that I'm really seeing in those um, powers was shot down in 1960, the exchange happened in 1962, is that once again we're seeing now, you know, in, initially, of course, everyone's very happy to see a release, but then there's a lot of criticism of it, you know, that it's being said, of course, now by the Republicans, you know, why have you exchanged this woman with her private issues of, you know, drugs, whether, you know, whatever the right and wrong on that, uh, for somebody as dangerous potentially as Victor Bout, you know, this seems a bit, you know, unfair. But and obviously the US were trying to get Paul Whelan, who's um, an ex-marine, who's also in Russian custody. They were trying to get him included in the deal. That obviously didn't work out. But similarly with Gary Powers, initially there was great sympathy for this man who'd been shot down. And suddenly in 1962, when he was being exchanged for a KGB colonel, um, in fact, a lot of people were saying, I mean, believe it or not, I think nowadays you wouldn't say this, but actually the, the Republicans were at that time saying that, in fact, Gary Powers should have taken his CIA suicide pill and the cyanide capsule that they give you rather than be captured and therefore that he was a coward and shouldn't have been exchanged. So this sort of criticism that we're now seeing of Brittany Griner is nothing new, I'm afraid, historically speaking. And, of course, there as ever uh, elements of racism uh, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, She uh, is uh, in a same-sex marriage, she's black, uh, and there are, uh, of course, those horrible bat squeaks of, of all of that. The awful kind of attitude. Absolutely. And she has been sort of supportive of Black Lives Matter and so on. And so, of course, now she's being portrayed as a traitor, someone who doesn't love her country and all of this. And, you know, all of this is being thrown at her. Um, so it's getting pretty nasty. Mm. And I mean, one thing, though, that perhaps is is quite interesting is that uh, it r- reveals a willingness uh, on, on the Russian side. Those communications lines are open, albeit through the UAE, uh, and that these swaps could continue. I mean, one of our guests yesterday said, though, this is very dangerous. Russia will be looking to get then as many Western prisoners as they can, if, if this is how it works. Yes, absolutely. Well, I mean, there, there was another on the table um, who is a, a guy who 
basically committed open murder in a Berlin park, um, murdered a Chechen um, fighter in Berlin, I think 2019. And the Russians wanted him included too, but the Germans said just absolutely not, no way are we mm. letting that guy be part of it. And that seems to be why Paul Whelan wasn't included in the prisoner swap. Um, but also, on the other hand, some people were saying that was really just a delaying tactic by Putin. He didn't want Biden to have a victory ahead of the midterms. So, you know, possibly he didn't really expect that to work out anyway. Yeah. Well, Berlin was very, very strong about this. They were very, uh, there was not up for debate that he would be let go. And in fact, Germany does have a strong sense of the rule of law. And we only have to look at the reaction to this far-right coup in Germany, which is just extraordinary. Remind us of this story. I mean, probably, you know, so many extraordinary stories this week. This one, nonetheless, I think, probably (laughs) stands out as the most extraordinary. I mean, you know, and this is also a week, of course, when we saw a coup attempt in Peru, a rather more convincing one, we might say. You know, these are places in Peru and Germany... Not, I mean, not necessarily the places you sort of thought this would kick off in the same week. Germany, probably the last likely place. So it's this bizarre sort of coup attempt, which we only really found out about because of these huge police raids this week um, and, you know, arrests of 25 people, um, which seems to be a group of sort of a very odd motley crew of, of sort of COVID-19 deniers and conspiracy theorists, people who actually believe that the post-war German Republic is illegitimate and was imposed by the Allies and they want to return to uh, 1937 German imperial borders. Um, And it's led by a Prince Prince Heinrich. Yes, this rather extraordinary character who sort of pops up. I mean, there seem to be all sorts of oddbods in it. But Prince Heinrich XIII of Reuss has sort of popped up, you know, this guy who's sort of dressed as Rupert the Bear um, (laughs) in his tweed um, and being arrested. I mean, he doesn't, you know, of course, have much legitimacy. And it seems, you know, I mean, the Deutsche Welle piece, the long piece on it um, is sort of headlined, you know, could a far right coup in Germany succeed? And this would appear to be a straightforward no. I mean, German (laughs) institutions are very strong. um, No real chance of success. But the thing that does seem to be genuinely worrying rather than completely amusing about it is that this group are clearly dangerous and are clearly inclined towards terrorist action. And that Mm. is frightening, even though they may have no chance of achieving their ultimate goal. They could, of course, do a lot of damage on the way. And of course, there are members of the the AFD who have been in Parliament. I mean, there are ex-MPs there that are judge. um, and, And we have seen increasing support for the AFD in Germany, although I think it's dropped off quite recently. It has, but I mean, what this shows, I suppose, is that, you know, that doesn't end the problem, that you do certainly still have, I mean, you know, yes, one of the figures in there is uh, Bigot Malsak Vinkerman, who indeed was a judge, was um, an MP for AFD. Um, So, you know, these people sort of have had a fair amount of influence and may well continue to have. And of course, often these movements can be quite dangerous when they feel they're being pushed down, you know, they sort of have a response to that. Um, I mean, I, you know, with Prince Heinrich, I was slightly reminded of there's a story that Max Weber once said that uh, Germany's great misfortune was that unlike the um, Stuarts and the Bourbons, the Hohenzollerns had never been beheaded. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in private, I don't think he made that comment in his written work, but uh, although uh, Prince Heinrich obviously is not a Hohenzollern, he um, nonetheless, you sort of get the sense of this. Uh, perhaps what Weber was talking about. Mm, Absolutely. Well, talking about influencers like that, let's look at influencers on TikTok because Taiwan is considering banning TikTok altogether, which to me seems a very dangerous move given how freedom 
loving the Taiwanese are and how inclined they are just to tell the government exactly what they think and take action upon it. Yes, this is a rather surprising story this morning in the South China Morning Post saying that Taiwan is considering banning TikTok. And it seems to be because, I mean... I think it's certainly controversial and plenty of people in Taiwan are pushing back at this idea. But the allegation is that TikTok is being used by Beijing as a form of what they call cognitive warfare. So to spread misinformation, disinformation, you know, lots of fake accounts of Taiwanese political figures and this sort of thing. But I must say, I think you sort of read this and you think, I just feel that this is the sort of move that comes out when people don't really understand the internet. Because the idea that you will somehow stop Beijing misinformation by shutting down one platform is, of course, you know, quite ambitious and perhaps a little naive um, in terms of how that really works. Um, And, you know, I think perhaps there have to be more complex and subtle ways to combat this sort of disinformation rather than just shutting down wholesale a whole platform. And, of course, lots of Taiwanese influencers out there are making, uh, making their incomes from TikTok, much like everywhere else in the world. It's now the most downloaded platform in the world. That's extraordinary. Do you use it? I've got an account and I watch other people's videos, but I've never made I hate making videos of myself. I think I'm just too old, but maybe I have to start <laughs> trying. It, I, yeah, I, I don't really get the hang of it. But when I'm depressed, I do look at videos of puppies. Lovely puppy videos. I like those. And there's also some really quite good sort of cooking. And so I'm, I'm afraid I'm not looking at uh, Beijing's misinformation, whatever that is, unless it's about puppies or uh, <laughs> making cakes in your microwave. <laughs> Alex, thank you very much indeed. Please do stay with us because we're going to come back and have a look at some of the other papers a little bit later on. Now, though, here's our contributing editor, Andrew Muller, with his weekly roundup of the stories we might have missed. Tomorrow belongs to me. We learned this week that we had perhaps paid insufficient attention to the first 12 Heinrichs. We learned this when German plod arrested one Heinrich XIII and a few dozen other conspirators, who now stand accused of planning to storm the Reichstag at some unspecified juncture and install Heinrich XIII, a tweed-jacketed 70-something scion we learned of some minor family of Thuringian aristocrats, as a new Kaiser. We learned that the putative putschists believe that the present German state is illegitimate and seek to re-establish the German Empire as it was circa 1871 to 1918, though one can picture difficulties persuading Poland and Russia of the merits of this proposal. We learned that these weirdos had been further inspired, almost as if believing that their founding principles were insufficiently bonkers, by both the seething drivelling of the QAnon cult and the attempt by fans of then-US President Donald Trump to take the US Capitol on January 6, 2021. We learned, other than reassuringly, that among those alleged to be involved were several active and former military and police personnel, one former member of the actual Bundestag, and an opera singer who fancied himself as culture minister. of the formidable capacities for droll understatement and historical perspective possessed by one serving German MP, Sarah Nani, of the Green Party, whose assessment of the situation will now be read by Monocle 24's ill-considered insurrections desk chief, Emma Searle. More and more details keep coming to light that raise doubts about whether these people were smart enough to plan and carry out such a coup. But no matter how crude their ideas are and how hopeless their plans, even the attempt is dangerous. 
Still, if there is one thing we have learned about plots to wrest control of the German state by nationalist yahoos and far-right dingbats, delirious with conspiracy theories and paranoia, it's that they rarely amount to much. Anyway. We learned that we were experiencing quite the red-letter week for aficionados of extra-parliamentary seizures of power, as Peru's President Pedro Castillo attempted the rarely witnessed manoeuvre known as the Autogolpe, essentially a coup against the state one is already leading. Los adversarios políticos más extremos, en un acto inédito, Se unen con el único propósito de hacer fracasar al gobierno. We learned from the address to the nation now playing beneath us that President Castillo, facing impeachment by an opposition-controlled Congress, had hit upon the idea of dissolving Parliament before it could run him out of office and ruling the country by presidential decree. We swiftly learned, as did now ex-President Castillo, that this wasn't going to work, as even his own vice-president declared she wanted nothing to do with it, and Castillo legged it for the Mexican embassy in search of haven, only to be apprehended by Lima's finest. We learned, therefore, that Peru's astonishing run of gutter balls, where presidents is concerned, continues. Castillo was Peru's 10th president of the 21st century. Of the previous nine, and we are not making this up, four are in jail under house arrest awaiting trial or fighting extradition, two were impeached and removed, one of them after six days in office, and another shot himself when police attempted to serve an arrest warrant. So we've learned that among the many challenges faced by new president, as of this broadcast, etc., Dina Boloate, a high bar for probity is not among them. We learned of a possible fallback career opportunity for those whose dreams and or delusions of resurrecting the Second Reich or being President of Peru have foundered in awkward circumstances. We learned of a job opening seeking many of the noble traits which aspirants to high office often imagine in themselves. The ideal candidate for the position is described as, and we are reading from the actual advertisement, highly motivated and somewhat bloodthirsty, and boasts qualities including, but not limited to, stamina and stagecraft, as well as swashbuckling attitude, crafty humour, and general aura of badassery. In return for which, you may command a handsome salary up to 170,000 US dollars. We learned, however, that there is a downside. We learned that the gig is what the city of New York delicately describes as Director of Rodent Mitigation, which, shorn of any such technocratic euphemism, shakes out as Gotham's Ratcatcher-in-Chief. And treat yourself to a round of applause for the sound effects. The 
Many thanks there to Andrew Muller. That was his weekly roundup of stories we might have missed, but there's one that nobody was able to miss at all. (laughs) (laughs) Wall-to-wall coverage, as The Guardian has it, of Meghan and Harry. Uh, This is an interesting story, not so much because of its royal content, but because of the media reaction. It's been extreme. I mean, that's the thing about it that I think is fascinating, which The Guardian is covering today, is... um, so, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, as we formally call um, Harry and Meghan, as they're much more known to the tabloids, um, have produced this Netflix documentary about sort of telling their side of the story. Um, and really, you know, actually, from what I understand, I haven't, I'm, I'm planning actually to uh, go back to bed this afternoon with a duvet and watch some of it. <laughs> um, but it's quite uh, dull. I have to it's tell a quite you. dull yeah. idea. Yeah. Oh, no, how sad. But apparently, really focuses quite a lot on their sort of treatment by the press. And of course, we can see that the press's reaction has been to ramp that up to 11. Um, I mean, amazingly, within two hours of it dropping, um, the top 12 stories on Mail Online were all about Meghan and Harry, um, with, you know, pictures and gifts and screen gabs and everything. The Sun had seven stories within two hours. I mean, the hay that is made out of these people is just sort of extraordinary. And, of course, it's very much presented as negative by most of the British tabloids. Um, But I think one thing that's sort of quite fascinating about it is how much your opinion on these people comes to be a statement of your own identity. You know, whether you like them, loathe them, or actually whether you say, oh, my God, could anything be less relevant? You know, I can't bear it. Uh, It's just extraordinary the level of hatred that is is, uh, directed at, at Megan, I, I, I mean, from people who have never met her, yes, and I mean, of course, her public persona is out there, and you can judge that. But, but it, it does seem extraordinary. Sure, I mean, you know, and that's the thing. I mean, I think wouldn't most reasonable people think? Well, you know, maybe she's a bit difficult in various ways, but she's probably all right. Really, she's a human being. You know, mm. <laughs> things are probably more complicated than we hear from the press. But it isn't like that. No, she really is turned into a kind of hate figure by. Uh, by this press coverage. And I mean, I think there is also sort of, there's a very small hardcore driving. I mean, there was some research done on Twitter that something like 80% of the anti-Megan tweets are produced by less than 100 accounts. So there is a very, very small group of very dedicated people and or bots driving this particular wave. Why would you want to do that, though? I just don't understand why you would want to dedicate so much of your life to to making somebody else unhappy. No, I mean, it does seem rather extraordinary. You do rather think, could you not get another hobby that's a bit less horrible? Crocheting, (laughs) Yes, quite. (laughs) Um, You know, I think the the phrase that exists on Twitter is you should go outside and touch grass, you know, (laughs) sort of reconnect yourself perhaps Mm. with the real world once you get down this rabbit hole. I mean, I've watched the, the, the first of, of the Netflix documentary that their sort of love story and it's very much about their love story and all the rest and yes of course it's quite sickening it's very self-indulgent it's you know all of these things but in the end it's pretty harmless you know, who cares really it's got to let them get on with it does it affect anyone else not really I mean you know. yeah I mean it's not like tax British taxpayers are, are, are funding them any longer I think that could have been an issue no not at all and I think there is but there's a way isn't there in which all of this kind of acts as a sort of national sideshow you know here we are not talking about the cost of living crisis, not worrying about our energy bills, because in fact, we're generating our own heat and fuel by hating Meghan Markle so much. I mean, you know, I I think I actually, I just, I sort of feel quite sorry for them because I think it's also quite difficult, you know, however, sure, you know, I'm sure they may have flaws, but actually it's, 
a very odd position to be in, royalty, and it's very hard to see how anyone really does it right. And in every generation, the press creates these villains in the royal family as well. People like, you know, in former generations, people like Princess Margaret, you know, or, of course, in her time, Princess Diana, very strikingly, who you know, would just be ripped apart and the most appalling things said and could just do no right. And whatever, again, the flaws of those people, I do think it's sort of to be turned into an icon like that must be an incredibly traumatic experience. Absolutely. Uh, Alex, thank you very much indeed for coming with me. I'm, I'm going to let you go because the Christmas market is going to kick off in around about half an hour. I think we open the gates to the public and it is beginning to smell really nice. There's bits of glue vine wafting through. Uh, the lights are twinkling in the Christmas trees uh, and it's really ramping up here. So if you are in Marylebone or even if you're not, uh, why not make your way down to One Dorset Street? We're on the corner with Manchester Street. Uh, we'll be very, very visible. You can see us very close to Baker Street Station uh, and sort of just round the back of Oxford Street. So really, really easy to get to. Uh, there's a very warm welcome waiting for you here. And we do hope uh, that you'll come along and meet all of us today. I'll be doing lots of radio outside and hoping to meet lots of listeners too. Now, talking about real royalty, let's cross now to restaurant royalty. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. Finally, London's iconic Michelin-starred restaurant, The River Cafe, has launched a new cookbook, The River Cafe Lookbook, Recipe for Kids of All Ages. With over 100 pages of visuals and 50 easy-to-make recipes influenced by River Cafe classics, executive chef and one of the book's authors, Sean uh, Wynne-Owen, sat down at the restaurant with Monocle's head of radio, Tom Edwards, to explain how the concept was developed. One of the things I worry about, having been a chef for 30 years, it's a bit of an aside from the book, I suppose, is whether restaurants are, are going to be a dinosaur. Like, you know how tea dances, people used to go to tea dances and now people think they're quaint, so they exist, you know. Restaurants, you think, they are, are they going to be a dying breed as the big, you know, um, delivery companies, you know, to make, bring food to your home? And even in lockdown, we we set up Shop the River Cafe, which is now quite a successful part of our business. But coming to eat in a restaurant is quite expensive. It's an expensive thing. But, you know, to make your staff, to, to keep your, you know, the restaurant industry is in crisis, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, some restaurants can't even be open five days a week or seven days a week because of staffing problems. And, and so that is something that we took a real serious look at here as a business, actually, after lockdown, especially trying to make people feel like they wanted to come back and and stand up all day and cook you know because it's quite a sort of tough gig isn't it but it, se it seems to have worked incredibly well and do, do you attribute that to um is it kind of payback for this sort of generational impact on british cooking and, and the london scene that river cafe's had is it to do with the focus of you and your the leadership team here on ensuring that people all those same values they felt yeah. like they had a warm yeah. welcome they experienced great seasonal yeah. food yeah and you didn't have to change everything too much is that why because this this dining room is whenever you come here it's always absolutely heaving it doesn't yeah. seem like you've had to struggle to get certainly the customers back 
I don't think we've had to struggle to get customers back, but we've had to, I've found, like, running a team of, of trying to meet people where they want to be. Mm. So pre- previously, you might, a chef might do five or six shifts a week, but now people want to do maybe four, or they want to have three days off and reconfigure their shifts, so they do maybe six shifts in three days. And I just think I'll meet people where they want to be to ensure that, you know, they still come to work and especially working parents just had a chef now who he's a 20 something year old man and I just heard but that his, he wants to go away for Christmas and New Year or whatever I just think if I was a 20 year old man I'd want to go away for, to Mexico in January why not you know <laughs> and I just think he wants to take a month off and most businesses would be like oh you only get two weeks I just think, let him have his month. And then when he comes back, he'll be like, yeah, yeah, I've still got a job. He comes back, he's happy. We're, you know, It's about meeting people where they want to be, I think, that keeps them here. But I feel like that's not everyone's worked that out. So that's all about the employer being like, oh, this is how we run it. Whereas for us, I think, you know, I'll meet you where you need to be. So you come and work for us. You know, that's, I take that quite, quite seriously. And do you think it's because you've got so many... Um super senior women running this business that you're better at that because it strikes me that there are businesses i think where the leadership team may be skew a bit male they are more inflexible I and mean, maybe i'm gender stereotyping but do, do you think it helps i think that i'm not exactly sure we, we take a lot of pride in in how we look after the team i pay is really important you know the value so i always think i want them to feel like they want to come to work but there's also no shame in saying I want to go home. Like, amazing, yeah. Why not? Like, because if you go, why should you be? The chefs shouldn't be so frazzled that when they go home, they just want to go and open a can of beans. You know, they need to be go home and cook, or go home and cook for friends, or go and eat out, or even read a book about food, or you know, listen to a pro. You know, and that's as important as being in work. So I really value their their work-life balance. There's a bit. It's like, and I think that. You know, that old-fashioned idea of chefs having to be, like, you know, 10 shifts a week, covered in burns and cuts and all knackered-looking. You're like, what is with that? I mean, also, because it's not, like, the bestly-paid profession, generally. So you need to, like, work-life balance is what it's all about. Yeah, well, it's always an incredibly happy always an incredibly happy shop, it yeah. seems, in here when, when I'm lucky enough to, to stop by. Um, let me ask you a bit more, Sean, about your... <coughs> culinary inspiration interesting talking yeah. about a chef going to Mexico I mean one can only imagine the sorts of culinary experiences you yeah. can enjoy on that kind of thing again I guess everyone was locked down for a while has that really made you double down on making sure you get out into the world and experience new things and meet different people and eat different foods eat in different ways share with other people where does that kind of day-to-day inspiration for the next great idea for you where does that come from I think I don't know like for us, travelling to Italy, like not being able to go to Italy was really brutal because just to go and, and breathe the air and look at how, you know, clean the streets are and go and drink an aperitivo or... And uh, we've just came back from Tuscany, actually, and, and the food was so simple there. And I was saying to the chefs, because we took a load of chefs, look how simple it is. Like, you could just have a piece of meat and some beans, some olive oil not forget that like people have a tendency to overcomplicate things and when you go to Italy you remember how how simple it is and how you know a piece of bread with, or a piece of toast with just rubber garlic and you seasons olive oil it's literally nothing better 
Um, so what about, what would you be most proud of, you know, any kid that, you know, is gifted the book for yeah. Christmas? Um, it's available in good bookshops now in front of the cafe yeah. shop. Um, or, yeah, happens upon it at home and starts leafing through the page. What, what do you, what would most excite you about literally looking through that, those sort of child's eyes at, at, at the book? Just to fire passion and curiosity about food or what, what kind of reaction do you all hope to um, to achieve it, you know a lot of a few of my friends who I've given the book to have sent me pictures of the things their kids have cooked from them and that makes me feel really happy because I think the recipes are simple enough that they I, I, I personally think they're for that eight, that that younger or you know very beginner chef or young person and they're so simple I think they're pretty foolproof and that feels like they are just have a go with them and all those pictures that they think oh I like I like the look of that have a go because they actually do do work and they're very you know I feel quite excited at the thought of there's a lot of pasta recipes there that are quite easy you know and not maybe not like some of the other River Cafe books that might be more technical they're just really yeah nice nice and simple simple recipes if you're a very accomplished chef, maybe just buy it for the pictures. <laughs> that was Sean Wynne Owen in conversation with Tom Edwards. The River Cafe lookbook Recipes for Kids of All Ages is available now. And Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend, but Monocle's Christmas market will be getting underway shortly, so stay tuned for updates from me across the day. And don't forget to tune in to Monocle on Sunday, which airs at 9am London time tomorrow. Our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will be your host for that. I'm Georgina Godwin, much more from me throughout the day, but for now, uh, from me and the rest of the Monocle on Saturday team, goodbye and thanks for listening.